again this morning, we are basing our lesson on a passage contained in the Gospel according to John. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. John chapter 10 and verse 10. As I've said for several weeks, and I hope at some point we'll all understand it, that Jesus Christ, He wants us to live a plentiful, a copious, a rich, and a bountiful life. But in order to live that life, Jesus wants us to live. In order to live life and live it abundantly, there are certain things that we've got to learn how to accomplish and certain attributes of character we've got to get the best of and certain things in our lives that that we have to overcome. We've got to get the very best out of life that there is to get. We've talked about anger and getting the best of it. We've talked about conflicts and disagreement and getting the best of those. Well, I want us to look at a commandment of Jesus this morning. Something that you and I have to do. Something that's absolutely essential for us. If we're going to live the abundant life, we have to learn to love. We have to learn to love one another. We've got to learn to love my singing and we've got to learn to love Rodney's preaching. Those are just things that we've got to learn how to do. When you think about the concept of love, and you look at this book right here, the teachings of Jesus Christ on the subject of love are broad and they are extensive. I'll never forget something that was an expression that I heard my grandfather use at least a thousand, maybe a thousand and one times. But he would bring a sermon to a close. And as he was bringing that sermon to a close and getting ready to extend the invitation for those that might want to respond, he would say, I can tell you in less than 30 seconds how to become a Christian and go to heaven when you die. It'll take me from now until Jesus comes again to tell you all the things involved in living the Christian life. But all you have to do to be a Christian and go to heaven when you die is to love the Lord. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he would go on from there and explain some of the things that Jesus commands as far as the plan of salvation and be thou faithful unto death. The same could be said regarding the comprehensive nature of the subject we're thinking about this morning. Loving one another. Here are some of Jesus' teachings on love. God loves man. Jesus loves man. Every one of us, everyone on the footstool of God Almighty should love Jesus and God. 
We are to love one another. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to love their husbands. Parents are to love their children. Children are to love their parents. Christians, oh, this is a hard one. You ready for it? Christians are to love their enemies. And this one's just about as hard. Christians are to love one another. When we begin to think about the subject of love, the first thing that naturally comes to our mind is what is love? How do you define love? Well, there's the dictionary definition. The Thorndike Barnhart World Book Dictionary defines love as fond or tender feelings, warm liking, affection, or attachment. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines love as strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. Attraction based on sexual desire. Affection based on admiration. And then this definition comes from the Reader's Digest Encyclopedic Dictionary. A deep devotion or affection for another person or persons. Well, that's all how man defines love according to the dictionary. How does the Bible, how does God's Word define love? Well, one is, there are two basic words in the New Testament that are a part of the Greek language which are used for love. One of these is agape, and its various forms, agapeo or agapatos. That's the kind of love that God had for His Son. You read about it in John 17 and verse 26. It's also the love that God has for the human race. In John 3.16, God so loved the world. God so agape the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is also God's will to His children concerning their attitude one toward another. In John 13 and 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so are you also to love one another. Christian love, whether it's exercised toward the brethren, or whether it's exercised toward humanity in general. Are you listening? Christian love is not an impulse from feelings. Christian love does not always run with natural inclinations. And Christian love does not spend itself only on those for whom some affinity is discovered. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And the word agape there is used in the present imperative form. 
That means something to you, right? No, it doesn't. But here's what it does mean. The present imperative form of the Greek language means that we are commanded to do something that involves repeated, continuous action. So when we are commanded by Jesus to love our enemies, it's not, okay, well, I love my enemies. No, it's continuous action, it's repetitive action that we are to love our enemies. That's the present imperative form. Agape. The second basic word for love in the New Testament is phileo. And it's various forms. Phileo is not as strong a word for love as agape. It means to be a friend. It means to have affection for. In its form of Philadelphia, it is to have brotherly love, brotherly kindness, and love of the brethren. The city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, and it derives its name from the Greek word phileo. Phileo implies an instinctive, affectionate attachment. While agape implies a sentiment based on judgment, which selects its object of love for a reason. Agape expresses a more reasoning attachment of choice and selection. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter of the Bible, the word used in 1 Corinthians 13 for love is agape. When Jesus offered His disciples and gave His disciples that new commandment, that they love one another, it was agape. It was involving a choice. A selection, a conscious decision to love one another. Now think about that expression of Jesus. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another. Have we ever really down deep inside, taking those words of Jesus to heart. That's a part of living the abundant life. Learning to love each other. Somebody said one time, you think you could learn to love the brethren? Well, I think so. I learned to eat spinach. Do we really love each other? Do we really love our brothers and sisters as Jesus loved us? That's what He said for us to do. A new commandment I give you. What's that new commandment, Lord? That you love one another. Well, how much are we supposed to love each other, Lord? Same way I loved you. As I have loved you, so are you also. To love one another. A song in our book. We sing it sometimes on Wednesday night because we haven't learned the song well enough to sing it too well. But it's a beautiful song. 
We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. Do they? Does the world around us know that we are Christians by our love? The background of this passage takes place as Jesus is eating the Passover with His apostles. And sometimes we forget that if we want to get a full picture of the life of Jesus, we need all the Gospels. We need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because it's like reading a biography of any individual. Different authors have a different perspective, and different authors have different information. Now, Luke gives his version of the events in Luke chapter 22. And Luke tells us that while they're eating the Passover, the apostles get into an argument. And it wasn't the first time. They were good. The apostles, the chosen twelve, they were really good. If you read the Gospels, they're really good at getting into arguments with each other. And you know what the argument was over? Luke says there arose a contention among them about which one was the greatest. I'm the, I'm the best. No, you're not. I am. He loves me more than He does you. No, He doesn't. He loves me the most. You're both wrong. He loves me the most. That's what they're doing. They're arguing about which one of them's the greatest and which one of them's the most important. In the middle of that argument, Jesus asks, Who's greater? He that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Now, it's at that point that you have to go over to John's Gospel account because that's where John picks up the story. And John tells us how Jesus tries to drive that lesson home because the meal is over. Jesus gets up from the table and He takes a towel and He girded Himself. And you know what He started to do? He began washing the disciples' feet. I'm thinking he probably, it doesn't tell us, but I'm thinking he probably started with John who was probably sitting on his right side because if you recall, it says that John was leaning on Jesus' breast. And then Jesus goes around the table, the circle of the disciples, John and Matthew and Thomas and Philip, Bartholomew and and all the rest of them. Now, I want you to put on your sancti- use your sanctified imagination. And I want you to, by an eye of faith, I want you to see the look of astonishment on their faces. Here's Jesus. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's made the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk, and fed 5,000 people with a little boy's sack lunch. And He is washing their feet when the last foot had been washed he takes off the towel he puts his outer garment back on and resumed his place there at the table that right there folks is the greatest sermon in the Bible on humility Jesus took a towel He could have taken anything that he wanted. He might have taken a scepter. He could have taken a crown. 
He could have taken the throne of the world's dominion and the sword of a conqueror because he could have done all of that. But instead of taking a sword or a scepter or a crown, the Lord of glory took a towel. I want us to understand something. Jesus did not demean himself when he stooped to wash the feet of his friends. It's an example to us. And it is a rebuke to our strivings and sometimes our insistence upon recognition. Humility like the humility of Jesus. Humility that is born of love is a humility that avoids strife and contention and crankiness. Humility like that of Jesus promotes love. And that kind of love silences abuse. It silences criticism. It vaunteth not itself, and it is not puffed up in any way. How much of the frictions and the strife and the struggle of life How much bitterness in life could be avoided if folks today would just walk in the loving path of humility that Jesus walked in? Jesus told them that night that they ought to wash one another's feet. He gave them an example of humility to do as He had done. And Jesus that night went on to tell them that One of them was going to betray him. Judas was pointed out as that one, and Judas goes from among them. And it's after Judas has left and gone out into the night that Jesus gave that wonderful commandment to love one another. Love is a condition of our salvation. Paul gave us that great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Remember that letter was written in response to problems that existed in the Corinthian church. They divided themselves into factions. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. They were arguing in Corinth over who had the greatest spiritual gifts. They were having issues just like the apostles over who was the most important. And if you remember from our study in Bible class of 1 Corinthians, that love chapter comes right in the middle of a discussion Paul is having about spiritual gifts. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. And then in verses 4 through 7, He tells us what the fruits of love are. 
Now, I think most of you know that horticulture is not my strong suit. I've never successfully grown a garden of any kind in 65 years. It had never happened. And probably isn't going to. But I do know a few things. I know if you see an apple tree, you're not going to go pick a bushel of peaches off of it. And I know if you see a peach tree, you're not going to get the fruit from that peach tree and make pear preserves. I just know that much. The way you tell a peach tree from an apple tree and a pear tree is by the fruit of that tree. In this book, there are numerous places that God talks about us bearing fruit as Christians. And the fruit on the tree of our Christian life tells others whether we are a tree of love or not. It tells others whether or not we're bearing love as the fruit of our Christian experience. Paul describes the fruits of love this way, verses 4 through 7. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but in rejoices in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Here's how that same passage reads in the contemporary English version. Love is kind and patient, never jealous or boastful, proud or rude. Love isn't selfish or quick-tempered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs that others do. Love rejoices in the truth, but not in evil. Love is always supportive, loyal, hopeful, and trusting. Our love. <clears throat> Our love is something that we must be consistent in. Because if we're not consistent, folks might just wonder about the sincerity of our love. And then again, there's some of us that may have been unloving for so long that if we started lo start loving the way Jesus wants us to, folks might wonder what happened to us. might be like the story of a couple of friends I heard about. We'll call them Joe and Bob. Joe would ask Bob to come over and help him build a deck in his backyard after work. So they got off work, clocked out, and Bob goes straight over to Joe's place. When they get to the door, Joe goes in, goes straight to his wife, gives her a hug, tells her how beautiful she is, tells her how much he missed her at work. Supper time comes, and they come in from working on the deck, and Joe compliments his wife on her cooking, kissed her again, and told her how much he loved her. And they're back outside working on the deck some more. And Bob asked Joe, what's the deal, man? And he said, you know, I'm really surprised how much fuss you make over your wife, Joe. 
Joe said, well, Bob, I started doing that about six months ago. And it revived our marriage. And things just couldn't be better. Well, Bob said, well, you know, that's worth a try. So he got home. He gave his wife a big, massive hug. He kissed her. He told her how much he missed her while he was over at at, uh, Joe's house and how much he loved her. It was more than she could stand. She burst into tears and just started crying buckets full. Bob was a little bit confused. He said, why are you crying? She said, this has been the worst day of my life. Little Billy fell off his bike and twisted his ankle. The washing machine flooded and broke and flooded the basement, and now you've come home drunk. Well, some of us have been unloving for so long. If we start loving the way Jesus did, folks might think the same thing about us. It might be like that at first if we haven't been loving the way we ought to love. But here's the deal, folks. God wants us to be a church that loves. And Jesus tells us we have to love each other the way He has loved us. He's about to go to the cross and die for those men and for me and for you. When we love each other, we'll sacrifice for each other's benefit. We may not be called on to literally lay down our lives. But we live the principle. When we love each other, and when we're a church that loves, we're going to submit to Jesus. And it's not a one-time-and-done kind of obedience or submission. It's continuing action. A continual obedience to the Lord. That's how we show Jesus our love. Loving Jesus is action. It's what, it's doing what Jesus tells us to do. He wants us to be a church that's characterized by love. Now guess what? That ain't easy. It's hard. For any individual or church to sustain that on a consistent basis. But that's what we're called on to do. And we're not ever supposed to give up on it. We're to understand that's the ideal. And we're to begin a never-ending pursuit of that idea. And then we have to understand and learn to practice the partner of love. Forgiveness. In the church, we've got to be accepting of one another. Recognize each other's uniqueness. Recognize our individual talents and our passions and our personalities. And serve one another out of love. You see, we're here to serve the Lord. We're here for the Lord. To serve Him, to glorify Him, and to honor Him, and to serve each other. Contrary to the popular belief of the 21st century, Jesus did not die and establish the church to meet my felt needs. When we do what Jesus wants us to do, we'll be here for each other. 
We'll pray for each other. We'll encourage each other. We'll bear each other's burdens and we'll love each other. If we're going to accomplish our mission in the world, then we are going to love one another. One of the great reasons I think the church, the length and breadth of this country is so feeble in the 21st century is because of what people see in us. They don't see the love that ought to exist in the family of God. Folks don't get their way. Things don't go to suit them. They just run off. Get their feelings hurt. Show them I'll quit. But it all has to start with a love for Jesus Christ. It all has its beginning when we make Jesus the Lord and Master of our lives. It all starts... When just as we are, we come to Jesus in simple trusting faith, confessing our sins, repenting of everything that's sin in our life, confessing His name and being buried in the waters of baptism, and then be thou faithful unto death. Are there changes you need to make? Are there changes that need to be made for Jesus to be Lord and Master of your life? Come to Jesus just as you are as we stand and while we sing.